you're ready to stop submitting basic applications and winging your interview for your next nursing role, whether you're a graduate nurse or a seasoned healthcare professional, we'd love to exclusively invite you to our secret nurse growth hub, where you can get all of the support to apply, interview and land your next nursing role completely free. All of the resources that we've shared and created over the last three years that have helped 3,000 plus nurses internationally apply, interview and land their next nursing role. So what are you waiting for? Come and join us today. It's completely free. LiamCaswell.com forward slash NGH. Come and join the Nurse Growth Hub today and let's make applying, interviewing and landing your next nursing role easy. very best you're ever going to get out of your team is the worst behavior you're prepared to tolerate. Hello, you are listening to the High Performance Nursing Podcast with me, Liam Caswell, where I help clinicians just like you take control of their careers and remove all the things stopping you from achieving your biggest goals. Let's dive in. Hello and welcome back to the High Performance Nursing Podcast. I'm so excited that you're all here today. We always bring you the fabulous guests. <laughs> We've got Jason Penberthy here. Hey, Jason, welcome to the podcast. Hey, how are you? Very good. I'm so excited. This has been a long time coming, hey? We've been working on this for a while. So excited to have you here. Before we dive in, let me tell you a little bit more about Jason and his amazing, amazing nursing midwifery career up until this point. So Jason Penberthy is currently a general manager and director of nursing within the New South Wales private sector. Jason graduated with a Bachelor of Nursing in 1996 and then during his clinical career completed a graduate diploma in midwifery and a graduate diploma in intensive care, working largely across ICU midwifery services, but also working across all clinical inpatient areas. He's worked in a variety of roles across the sector, public and private, and within management, and has completed an MBA with a major in health services. Now is currently working as a GM and a director of nursing. We are privileged to have you here. Not only that, you have also won multiple awards for your amazing work in healthcare. I'm going to mention all of them because we've got to definitely celebrate all of those things. The 2019 Outstanding Employer of Choice for your work at Toronto Private, 2019 Runner-Up as CEO of the Year and received honorary mention at the Australian Healthcare Awards, 2022 Healthcare Improvement Award category for St. George Business Awards for Warrington Private Hospital and 2022 Final Gold Award Business of the Year, St. George Business Awards at Warrington Private. Amazing. That is so good. Look at you go. Team effort. <laughs> team, team effort. It's a team effort. For yeah, sure. yeah, yeah. We've got to celebrate these things though, hey? Absolutely. We're only as good as the, you know, the cog in the, in the chain, as we say. You know, we're a combined effort. We can only do it together. Yeah, mm. definitely. Well, I love that so much. So tell us a little bit. You've done lots of amazing things and, you know, you've still got so much to do, I'm sure, in your career. But I'm curious, in your own words, tell us what it's been like for you starting as an RN, building your career up to the level of general manager and CEO, what does that look like? What has that looked like for you? As you mentioned, I studied at Wollongong Uni and graduated in 96 and did my graduate program down that area. The graduate program for me wasn't 
a positive experience. It didn't start off well. It was my first introduction to bullying in the workplace. And quite significant that shaped, I guess, was the rest of my career. I can't remember whether it was my second or third rotation, but it was towards the end of the graduate program and it resulted in me then dropping out of the program. And it was from the nursing unit manager. And for whatever reason, I seemed to be the target for that particular program for that particular year. And and she was a person who was known for, you know, picking out somebody in the graduate program and just constantly at them. But the point that I'll make, I'll just use sort of some idea of how she was. She was attending a meeting off site one day and I was getting two new admissions and the ward clerk had put the paperwork together in the folders, in the beds, and of course, course Mr Smith rocks up and his paperwork's in bed 219 so foolishly I would think he would be going into bed 219 and started to do the admission process in the room with the patient and whilst the num had been away one of my other patients had passed away and had already been down in the morgue and it had already been sorted etc She came back to site and she told me that she'd received a phone call from a family member inquiring over that particular person. And she said, I just mentioned there was no change. I said, well, actually, there was a change. Passed away is now downstairs in the morning. So that became my fault because... I hadn't communicated at all, but I didn't know she was back on site. And then when I was doing the admission at the bedside, she came in and she just stood there and she said to me, what in the F are you doing? And I was just completely gobsmacked that, you know, you would swear in front of myself and the patient. And she said to me, I wanted him in the other bed, you F and little idiot. And just was completely, I was just lost for words. Mm. And then the poor ward clerk could overhear this conversation and had intervened. And when she was in the corridor, she said, look, that's my fault. I put the paperwork together. And she said, and you, you're just a dumb effing ward clerk. And that was kind of her behaviour towards the staff. And, you know, I stood up to her the next day and I said to her, I didn't appreciate it. I thought it was inappropriate and I won't tolerate it and then she said thank you for standing up to me it shows you've got great initiative and I just thought what planet are you on and I thought you know it can't stop there so I did actually report it to the director of nursing and the response I got at that level was yeah we know her quite well you'll expect that from her and I thought Wow, it's known and expected at the ward level. It's known and expected at the highest executive level. Mm. So what is this industry that I've entered into? And I guess from there, I never really thought about entering management early on. And over the years, that bullying kind of behaviour, not to that extent, and certainly not from other managers had continued, but certainly, you know, horizontal bullying from other nurses and you know I've listened to your podcast and you know it's a common theme isn't Mm -hmm. it we hear it from our peers that it occurs and I guess over the years I was 
given opportunities to enter into management. So I started off in doing some after hours managing, which I really enjoyed, you know, exposing me to other clinical areas. And that then led me into a NUMS job. And then I was doing quality management. I became a deputy director of nursing and director of nursing, director of clinical services, and then went up into the CEO general management. A couple of roles ago, I was a regional manager across a couple of sites as a CEO. When I got probably to the after hours management role, I kind of had my sights on being a director of nursing. And I thought to be a director of nursing or certainly a director of clinical services where it covers an allied health element as well. I wanted to vary my clinical experience as much as possible, purely just so I could have a greater understanding as a DCS across, you know, the whole clinical services stream. And it's really interesting. I never really thought that a general manager or a C was something that a nurse could ever enter into. And I suppose it's probably because I, at that point in my career, had never been exposed to any. They were either, you know, a doctor background, they'd either largely been business people, non-health, but had come from a business background. And then when I was getting into my first director of nursing, director of clinical services roles, they were my GMs or my CEOs were nurses. And I thought that then that would be my next step. And thankfully, I was, again, it just sort of fell into place. It wasn't something that was I had applied for. I joined a company that was expanding and I was in a DCS role. And they had acknowledged that I was doing a good job and thought, you know, CEO might be the next step for me. Would I be yeah. interested? So that's how it kind of come to fruition. With the ICU and the midwifery, there was an element there at one point I wanted to joined the ambulance and both were required for that role. And so that's how those two came about. And I guess my management style, I've learned how to manage learning from people on how not to manage, which is really sad. I've seen, you know, going right back to my first, you know, new graduate program and experiencing what I experienced. And then over the years, just seeing inappropriate comments or Mm -hmm. clear discrimination, clear, just inappropriate behaviour, you know. Mm -hmm. And I thought, you know, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it well. I'm going to do it to the best of my ability and how it should be done and, you know, use all those experiences and try and remove them from the industry. Yeah, yeah, I love that. So that's kind of led me to where I am. Yeah, Yeah. amazing. There's a few things I'd love to jump on there because there's obviously lots of grads listening to this podcast. We help a lot of graduates and them just hearing, like I think it would be so inspirational for people to hear that as a grad, like you're now a CEO, GM, director of nursing, you've done all of that and you left a graduate program because there's a belief, there's a common belief amongst nursing graduates that if you don't stay in the graduate program, even if you're hating it, even if it's completely misaligned with where you want to be or what you're doing or your life or all of the things, that if you leave, it's the end of your nursing career. And I love that you've just proven that to be not true. Yeah, and it isn't true, you know, and I think in the current industry too, in the current shortages that we've got in the industry, it's even 
less true now. I mean, back then, I'm talking, you know, we're talking 1997 was my grad program. You know, I remember when I even applied for my first midwifery job, you know, someone practically had to die before a vacancy would come up. You know, it's, and you know, it was, it was quite frightening to leave the grad program because I thought, would that be held against me? Would it be something that, you know, could I get another job? And I didn't have to wait. And I, I did get a permanent position straight up on a medical ward. And it's really funny. I actually had a conversation with one of our graduates here at the hospital that I'm managing at the moment who literally had that same question saying, mm -hmm. you know, he's just in his first rotation, but for personal reasons needs to drop back to casual. Yeah. Is it going to impact on him? And is it going to be held against him? But the answer is no, it really, that's the reality. The reality is that, you know, we have, you know, more junior people doing agency shifts these days. We have more junior staff doing, you know, casual employment, all of those sorts of things. But I think you've got to have that right drive though. I think you still need to, I think if you're going to do it, you need to be willing to put in some hours at home around, you know, professional development. And that's probably what led me to go straight into the postgraduate programs that I went into because I only stayed in the medical ward for about four months and then I went into intensive care. So then I made the decision to then do the graduate diploma in intensive care because that was probably, that was the second year after. So I did about six months of my grad program and then did six months in the medical ward and then went straight into intensive care. So, you know, even that in itself back then to have not completed a grad program completely mm -hmm. to then be able to be given a permanent position in intensive care as an RN2 is really significant. You know, back then, you know, that's huge. But, you know, I promised and made the commitment to do the postgraduate work to support, you know, the development that was required to be at that level. Yeah, I'm still right. Like I, I, we say it all the time on the podcast, like I'm a firm believer in sampling and exploring and trying to find your space. Like I think that it's kind of, we see a lot of people in healthcare get stuck in one role because they think they've got to stay for some unspoken truth. Yeah. And then they get burnt out or they feel misaligned or it just doesn't work for them anymore. But they, the fear of stepping outside of the comfort zone and trying something new and just testing and having a bit of a play with the nursing career just seems like a huge step to take. Yeah. And I love that you are, again, like living proof of that, that you can move around. You can try all the different things and it will add to your skill set as you move forwards. One of the things that you mentioned on our intake form was about how having a really solid clinical foundation is important for building a management and a leadership career. How have you found that to be true? Do you want to feel better as a nurse, learn how to manage your negative self-talk, improve your confidence, prevent and reduce burnout, and build your nursing career on your terms? If I'm hearing a big fat yes, our high performance nursing membership is perfect for you. Come and join me and our amazing community of high performance nursing members every week for live life and career changing coaching and access to so much more within our community. Our goal is to help you rekindle your love with yourself and your passion for nursing. You can join us at liamcaswell.com forward slash HPNM. Come and join the community today and let's build that nursing career on your terms. 
true for the DCS level. My first num job was in a coronary care unit and I'd finished sort of working in it. Well, the intensive care unit was really a combined ICU, CCU. So it was a bit of a, a go between sort of thing. And then I sort of then went into CCU for a little bit and then went into the num position as, you know, in, on the coronary care unit side of things. But at the point, I then made a decision that I thought, a director of nursing or a director of clinical services was, you know, down the track. I was quite a uh, numb, I went into management quite early, but I knew that being a DCS was probably a good decade away. So I made the concerted effort to change clinical roles every two years into a different specialty, into a different area just so I had a solid understanding of when I thought. And again, I knew very little about the role of a DCS. I knew that they obviously oversaw the governance of the clinical services stream, but what that actually entailed on a day business, I wasn't really too sure. But as a numb, you know, going to the bed meeting, you know, you've got your surgical numbers there, you've got your medical numbers there, you've got critical care numbers there, you've got your fever managers there. So I thought, well, if you're dealing and having all of these people report to you, some level of understanding of their role, I felt for me personally, was an important step to take. The only area I didn't really delve into was theatres. I did PACU, a little bit of anaesthetics, but I didn't do scrub scout. The theatres just wasn't for me. When I was a midwife and I used to have to go in and, you know, go in and collect the baby, mm. just that confinement of the masks and the environment and, you know, that 20 minutes I was in there just to grab the baby and take it back to the birthing suite, that was more than enough of the <laughs> exposure of theatre that I need. And please, there's... Please, any theatre nurses listening to this, please don't take offence. <laughs> it just wasn't my cup of tea, as I'm sure a lot of theatre nurses ward nursing isn't for them. Orderly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah, to answer your question, that's what I did. Kind of once I had my sights set on the Director of Nursing DCS role, Still. I then changed every two years. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I guess you need to be prepared to explain that. Mm. It, you know, it's that staff turnover. It comes up at application time and things. Not so much in the beginning, but people, you know, managers are curious. Why do you move on every two years? Yeah. And I think it just earned me a level of respect. I think if you're mm. honest around why you are doing it and where you think that you're professionally heading, I think it works well. And then having done the role absolutely helps. Mm. You know, when you're having your one-on-one -on -one meetings with the nurse unit managers of those departments and you know, you're talking about budgets and you're talking about their consumables or instruments or their patients and their doctors or how it all works and flows and things like having had the clinical background and the experience and the exposure to it certainly helps guide and then 
manage them as well. We all love that. Obviously helps you support them as best as you can. But I think maybe a lot of people would be maybe a little bit surprised or shocked that you, as a GM and a director of nursing, you're on the floor chatting to graduates. Because I know for me throughout my career, I did not really meet any senior executives in my experience until I was in an education num role where I would actually know who they were, they would know who I was. How important do you think that is, that there's that connection between, because there's often, you know, we hear it on the floor a lot, right? Like, oh, you know, execs sit in the, like there's a lot of stories that people run. Yeah. Well, they'll serve us for sure. And I know not, they're, they're not true. But what's been your experience of that? My management style is I manage by walking around. I... Obviously, there's moments where I need to be in my office and there's paperwork and, you know, the the mundane kind of administration work needs to be done. But there's huge benefit in getting out and speaking to the staff, speaking to the patients, speaking to the doctors and, and just walking through the facility every day. So I do it at a minimum three times a day every day and I, without fail, it's just something that I do. I do it at the beginning of the day to say hello, just to check in and, you know, just to see if everyone's got everything that they need for the day. I do it sort of, you know, midway through the shift. And then I do it at the end of the day, purely as the opposite, to say goodbye, say mm-hmm. hello to the afternoon shift, meet with the after hours managers. And I also do it because I think, If you don't do it and it's not something that's consistently done from an executive point of view, people, when they see it happen, they just run. You know, they they kind of go and hide sort of thing. But if you're doing it in everyday practice, people just, you know, it just becomes part of practice and they just continue on doing what they normally would do because they see you as part of the team. And you pick up on so many different things. You know, most recently I promoted one of our RNs to CNS slash CNE because, you know, she got used to me being around and, you know, doing my thing and just walking through the facility. So she then was comfortable enough just to continue to do her thing. And it puts people on your radar. And, you know, I then had a conversation with her about, you know, is this an opportunity that's coming up? It's something I think from my observation you'd be fantastic at. And she thought, I've never really thought about it, but yeah, I'd love to give it a go. So I think you get to pick up on so many nuances that the staff will naturally do if it becomes part of your everyday practice. And consistency is the key. You need to be consistent in anything that you do. You need to be consistent in your performance appraisals. You need to be consistent in performance managing staff, Mm. your management approach i'm very coach like i have a door always open policy and i want people to succeed and if i can make the difference to one nurse's journey to get or want to get to where i'm at then i've done my job yes i'm concerned It's so transformational to hear that. And I'm sure for your team and the people that you've worked with to see that on the daily, because I think that's where a lot of the disconnect is. And when you said that there around, 
you know, when we do it for accreditation or we just do it for doing its sake, everybody sniffs it out and you're right, like everybody's hiding and no one's transparent. No one's used to having conversations with senior executives. And it also allows, like, it allows us to see that you're still human, right? Because there's this perception that when you get up into executive that you just look at numbers and all of the things and you don't really care, quote unquote, care is the story that people say about what's happening clinically, but being so visible allows you to walk around and to really transform and influence other people's practice as well. I'm sure like the team leaders, the CNSs, the nums, because if you're walking around, you know, everybody else has to walk around as well, right? Like people pick up on that behavior. Absolutely. And you're right. And you pick up on the good, the bad, the ugly, you pick up on it all, but also, you know, I want to see firsthand are they struggling? Like, I want to see the connection between, and I think this is the the nurse part of me that will just never go away. And, you know, people quite often get shocked to learn that I still often do agency shifts on the weekends in ICU and stuff as a clinician. So as you built your career, I'm curious, because I see this a lot in coaching, that as we move up the ladder, there is that identity shift, right? Like there's you move up and you're still a nurse for sure, but you're now a nurse unit manager and your responsibilities are different. And sometimes that can be a bit of a challenge in accepting that as we move up the chain and then also balancing between our clinical and our non-clinical responsibilities. What tips or advice would you have for anybody or what's your experience of that moving up the ladder? Aim high. Don't be afraid. You know, if you don't put your hat in the ring, you're just never going to know. And I think once you start getting at that level, the opportunities just keep coming. And, you know, it's such a close-knit community. It really is. You know, the the executive sort of community, even at, at a numb level, you know, if you're a CNS or an RN on the ward and you want to take that next step, you know, have the conversation with your director of nursing if you're comfortable to do so. You know, have the conversations with the appropriate managers that, you know, may be able to assist. And, you know, I think I always encourage staff if, you know, if you're not comfortable to go to person A, then try person B. And, you know, there's always someone that you can go to to go and have a conversation around your career. And all places have employee access programs. And whilst they are largely, you know, thought of as a counselling service, they're there for advice as well. So I think have the conversations with people. And I think particularly for me, going from numb to a don, it was really daunting. I, you know, it's, it's really, really daunting. And I think build yourself a network of people that can assist and support and genuinely be there for you when you need them to. You know, there isn't a single day that I'm reaching out to my network of general managers or CEOs and saying, hey, guys, you know, it's stuck here. What would you do? None of us have all the answers. You know, it doesn't matter where you are at your career. It doesn't matter how much experience you've got or it doesn't matter what level you're at. None of us have all the answers. So I think that network building is crucial, crucial. And get the right advice. Walking through being largely my career, my last 12 years of management has been in the private sector. Mm. 
And, you know, particularly when I got to the executive level and even probably more so now as a general manager, CEO, it's important for me to ensure that the staff have the skills, the equipment and everything they need to get the job done, Mm -hmm. basically. And so I like to obviously... You know, being a CEO and a general manager, you've got a budget to put together and you've got to balance the budget and you've got to do all the right things across, you know, from, you know, you've got shareholders and you've got a board Mm. to communicate with and answer to. But on the same token, those cost-saving strategies, what do they mean to the nursing staff or the cleaning staff or hotel services people at the forefront? You know, it's really important that when I'm walking through, I don't see the struggles. I don't see them not being able to fulfill their jobs properly. And so that's another reason as to why I do it. I think it's important to, you know, stories that you hear of, you know, executives who don't do that. The common feedback from the floor is there's just this disconnect and they've got no idea of the struggles that we're going through on the floor Mm -hmm. because I think they are largely, you know, financially driven and, and don't don't think that obviously financially driven is in my mind Mm. but if it's also balanced with clinical outcome and staff satisfaction and you know the awards that you mentioned at the beginning you know those peer nominated awards and largely won because of those things because of you know, being employer of choice around support and and morale and culture and all the things that really matter and should matter to to the hospital. Yeah. Have you seen a direct link between that, the war crimes and and then the stories? Do Do you find that there's less of the stories that run kind of locally around the hospital because of your, like your presence and the strategies that you have in place? Yeah, and we've got some other programs that we have here. So we've got an ideas and innovation program that we've brought in, and it's really about I want to hear from the team around what they think that we need. And it can be something as simple as a policy change. It can be something as equipment recommendation. It could be you know, an improvement to patient or staff satisfaction it could be a whole variance of things it's really entirely up to them it can be anonymous or they can put their name to it and we get them to fill them out and we bring them to the management meeting every month and we discuss them and we table them and we feed them back each month in a newsletter and Mm -hmm. it's done by a traffic light system so any idea or the innovative suggestion that they've put together that's been approved and implemented will be put Mm. back as green anything that's been approved but yet to be implemented will be an amber and anything that we can't do and has been not approved is red but we always justify it and we always give them a reason why Mm. and i think closing that loop out is as equally important as well yeah so good. That's amazing. I like that idea. There's, I know there's a lot of um, nurse unit managers that listen to this podcast. So they might steal. They might steal that idea. I think the feedback is the most important thing, right? Because often it does feel like it just lands on deaf ears. 
and that then there's no follow through. And even with things like instant reports or, you know, just closing the loop for people is so, so important so that they don't, one, conjure up their own internal story and think that they're terrible or they've made a mistake or whatever's happened to them. And also it allows the team to build culture and trust within the system, right? Mm. So we can deliver better care. Mm. I love that. That's such a good idea. I'm curious about your experience as a CEO and like, all of the things, but CEO GM at the moment in terms of building culture. I know we've talked a little bit about that, but obviously in a post-COVID era, COVID was an experience to say the least. How was that as a as a CEO GM having to manage a service? And how do you think that will impact the culture moving forwards of healthcare? I think during COVID was particularly difficult for every Body. And I think not just in healthcare, I think business in general, you know, it, it was a shocking time for anyone in the business. And that was really reflected. And it was a common theme at the 2022 awards, you know, the struggles that, you know, small businesses have gone through and and even larger ones. And and this week I have flown, I went to Adelaide for a few days on a conference and it was the first time that I'd been on a flight since pre-COVID. And I couldn't tell you how exciting it was to do that. <laughs> I don't think I've ever been so excited at an airport to do a check-in and a bag drop in all my life. So I think culturally for everybody, it was tough. It was hard work you know the added challenges of everybody wearing the ppe and just you know screening and cancellation of surgery and i think particularly when i talk about the private sector you know the significant impact of the cancellation of elective surgery you know that is the private sector that is really impacted on that and i think some of the decisions around certain aspects were made quite quickly and you know could have possibly have been dealt with a little bit better mm. you know because there's a flow-on effect so not just from the surgical aspects the patients that then have surgery then need to go and have rehab so then that affects the rehab service so I think the culture of um, COVID really impacted people quite mm. negatively you know, there were job losses, there were burnout, you know, the whole aspect of it was was really tricky to manage. Coming through the other side of it, it's been really interesting seeing, I think staff have struggled from a point of view where patient numbers had dropped significantly, obviously, for a variety of reasons yeah. with COVID. And it's been interesting to see staff now, as we come back to normal pre-COVID levels, they're really struggling. And I think there's been an element of we've kind of forgotten how healthcare used to be a few years and and it's now managing that morale and that culture. And you know, it doesn't take much to say thanks to your team. Doesn't take much to, you know, do an employee of the month program. You know, we do monthly barbecues, you know, we make sure we celebrate the nurses day and the allied health day and the physio and exercise physiology days and all of those things and again I think staff appreciate that walkthrough just that managing by walking through and you know if I see someone struggling I will 
take my jacket off and I'll help them make the bed or go and get a bedpan or it's just those little things that I think help with the culture. And it is improving. It's definitely improving. You know, there's staff shortages across all roles, clinical and non-clinical, that we still need to address. But I think it's about also listening to what your team want. Mm -hmm. Going to do a staff satisfaction survey, then really listen to it and you need to really act on it and you need to feed back what those actions are. Mm. And the staff need to see that you've committed to those actions mm. and that there's been improvement before you do the next one. Yeah, totally. Yeah, it's so fascinating, isn't it, the world of culture and healthcare, especially post-COVID. I mean, we speak to people every day that or nurses in the system. And, you know, there, there is a general feel of being burnt out and there's a lot of like, you know, there's a lot of bullying harassment. There's a lot of great things, obviously I'm pointing out the not so great things, the shortages, you know, staffing ratios, increased use of agency, all of these things. I'm curious what your take on this is. I can't help but think that all of these things like have always been there. You know, I think that it's worth noting that, that they've always been there. And everybody that I talk to across the spectrum of their career is like, yeah, this was a problem in the 90s. It was a problem in the 70s. You know, we had the same issues. We had less technology and stuff to deal with it all. So it could potentially have been much more difficult to deal with. But what I think we're seeing is a lack of non-clinical support across the sector. So I think that we're all great clinicians. We've all got amazing clinical skills, but we have access to EAP. We have access to managers, so on and so forth, educators. What do you think is missing in the non-clinical space? Is there anything missing that you think staff would benefit having access to? For me, of course, I'm biased. And I think that every nurse, every doctor, every allied health team member should have access to like clinical supervision or coaching as a medium to come in and explore their careers in a kind of non-biased, non-judgmental way. That's what I would love to see moving forward. So I think it would help everybody manage their mind a little bit better as we work in a really, you know, it's it's just the system just never stops, right? Like you just feel like you're constantly kind of getting spat out of it. Mm. So what would you say are the non-clinical challenges that you think nurses face? Yeah, it's, it's all those things that you've mentioned. And I think some clinical specialties do get clinical supervision and there's clear benefit allied health for example they get clinical supervision particularly in the psychology space and there is clear evidence and outcomes and things like that for that group there clearly is a huge variance with the EBAs around the varying groups of the services that offer and I think that we could be more unified and consistent with those EBAs around those types of things that you've mentioned. I would like to see, you know, greater funding in the private sector for additional non-clinical roles that can support. I'd love to see more educators. You know, I'd love to see more CNCs. I'd love to see more nurse practitioners. You know, all of those aspects that can benefit both the private and the public sector. But, you know, until both sectors are willing to sort of put forth the financial backing for it, it's just something that doesn't come to fruition. But, mm-hmm. it's, uh, you know, we, we do have CNEs and we do have where we can support, where we, you know, are able to do so. Mm-hmm. But we certainly need more and we certainly need more, more role in terms of, as I mentioned 
CNCs and nurse practitioners and and all of those. Yeah. And it also presents another avenue for career progression because I think really at the moment, there's not a lot. You're either going to stay on a clinical RN, CNS kind of pathway. You're either going to go off and do education as a CNE or a CNC, or you're going to go into management. So, you know, nurse practitioner, whilst there are some, it's still very limited and it's very limited in certain areas. You know, it's only popping up in certain types of specialties. So it would be good to see that there were more streams of career progression for staff. And sadly, I think a lot of staff who are at that burnout stage treat the industry or treat their job. And I'm just generalizing here. Mm. This is, you know, across the board, but, you know, unfortunately you do see staff that come to work and it's a job. Whereas I don't think we're in an industry where it's a job, it's a career, Mm -hmm. you know, and I think the minute that you start really hating what you're doing for whatever reason, Mm. I think we first need to address what the issue is And certainly my take on it is if you've got one or two people who are disgruntled, you could potentially put it down to, you know, it could be related to whatever's going on in their world. But I think if you've got groups and groups and teams of people, then that's my problem. You know, that's an organisational wide concern that needs to be addressed you've got masses of people who are telling you and feeling the same things, then that's no longer an individual problem. That's an organisational problem. And I think that that's really important to have that at the forefront of your mind and be open and honest and willing to address it. You know, I've stepped into new roles in executives and, you know, I've, I think I've probably terminated three mums and six senior clinicians well, since stepping into management. And in a lot of the times, the sad thing is it's like, oh, yeah, but they've been doing that for years. There's nothing on their HR file. There's nothing. And again, you know, I've said time and time again to my team, you know, the very best you're ever going to get out of your team is the worst behaviour you're prepared to tolerate. And I think until we, as a group, collectively, you know, improve on all of that, then, you know, culture improvement and morale is a long way away. I'm curious what that's like, because I know, like, I've had to, as a numb, obviously I haven't worked at that higher level, executive level, I've had to lay off a couple of people and take them through performance processes. So like yourself, you come in, you're like, how has this been going on for so long? We need to do something about this. How do you manage that as a CEO, as a GM, like personally? Because, you know, it's quite a tricky process. I found it to be quite confronting. I think that I did it reasonably well and we had a really good outcome with this person. But it can, you know, it can quickly turn sour and there's lots of moving parts in these processes. How do you kind of look after yourself as a CEO or GM? The process itself, I think if you follow, there is a really clearly defined way of managing the process by fair work, by legislation, you know, should be built into the hospital policies and those sorts of things. If I've walked into a situation and I'm new to the organisation and, you know, a behaviour has come up and, yes, I've been told that it's 
been going on for years, but there's nothing there. That's my starting point. So clean slate, start from scratch and just follow the process. You, you know, you've got to give them 24 hours notice. You, you've got to allow them to have a, you know, a support person. You've got to offer them EAP, you know, invite them to a fact-finding meeting. There's always two sides to a story. And depending on what it is and depending on what comes out of it is then an outcome meeting. For a first meeting, it's very rare that it's usually just nothing other than just a, you know, a formal warning sort of thing. If the behaviours continue and if they escalate within a short time frame, it's the same behaviour, then again, just going through that process again, back to another meeting, discuss. And depending, I guess, on the severity of it, it's a decision at that point whether is this person going to change? Do we give them another warning or do we terminate? So, you know, it's a matter of then giving them an opportunity to show cause as to why they shouldn't be terminated. And if they can't demonstrate or be sincerely and genuinely remorseful, then they need to go. You know, most people after the first one will be very remorseful and apologetic and you know, very, very sincerely. And and then that's the end of it. You, you just mm. don't deal with it. And then there's the handful that need to be terminated. Yeah. In most cases, all of the ones that I have terminated have been through bullying, mm. bullying that's stemmed years and quite serious, quite serious situations that significantly has impacted large groups of people, not just mm-hmm. one or two. And I think, you know, if you're getting sort of upwards of 15 to 20 complaints against an individual that clearly objectively outline very, very similar traits and behaviours that's happening to each of them, then, you know, I think it speaks for itself. Pretty obvious, hey? I did find that to be one of the most challenging parts of a non-clinical role was the people management because we're great clinicians, right? But often when you do progress that, depending on the organization and the support that you have, sometimes you're doing this on your own. Like there's a policy there for sure, but it's like, how do you manage your mind around that? How do you manage their expectation? Their, you know, all of the things that we're never really kind of taught can be quite confronting as a kind of first-time numb, first-time DCS, like as you know. Yeah, it is. Look, and it's horrible. It's not a nice process to go through for anybody at any level. You know, I will always have a second manager with me and I largely lead the session. If the the num's in there for me as the support, it'll be the director of nursing kind of led part of the role. Usually if I've been in a CEO role and I've got a separate DCS, it would be, again, the Mm -hmm. two of us doing it with me generally being the support as the CEO and the DCS leading it, depending on what it is and depending on who Mm -hmm. it is. So, you know, if you're talking of a nursing clinician, it's then largely led by DCS. But if you're talking more sort of medical, that kind of level, that's then when it flips over into the CEO, general management type role. But, you know, for me personally, I do reach out to EAP. I do talk to the counsellors and I, you know, the HR team and all of those sorts of things because it's never nice to terminate anybody. They've got families, regardless of what led to the termination. It's, you know, they've got a life and they've got to live and it's not nice. 
Mm. But, you know, I need to be able to remove myself from that situation and that level of thinking and thinking about the grander aspect of the hospital and of staff and the patients and the impact that it has here on the, on the team here. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think it's worthwhile just noting again what you said earlier, which is about having a good network and having that support there for yourself. Definitely. Like anybody that's listening that is a NAM or is working up, up the chain, these things are really hard. And I think it's important to recognize that you are human and that you need to address your own human needs through this process as well. Yeah. So that you take it home and it consumes your life and your brain. And you can't, all of the things that happen anyway, you just can better manage them hey, as you move up. And I think too, I think the NUMS that are listening, the NUMS is probably one of the hardest gigs there is. <laughs> And it truly is. That's where I tapped out. <laughs> you know, you, you're copying it from me, you're copying it from your staff, you're copying it from the families, you're copying it from the doctors. It's a really challenging role. And I think if you can survive at a numb level, the next level's up the chain, you'll be fine. Okay. Maybe I tapped out too early then. <laughs> Oh, maybe this hope for my nursing career yet. Oh, that's funny. So as we wrap up so much in here, there's so much that I'd love to ask you about conscious of your time. I'd love for you to impart with the listeners. If anybody's listening that wants to build their career up to a leadership role, whatever level, education leadership, what do you think they should be really focusing on? Clinical variance. Yeah, as I said. Mm-hmm. Again, I think it depends on, are you talking getting up to where I Yeah, am? like, yeah, up to CEO. Let's say somebody wants to get to CEO, like, what do they do? How do they get? Yeah. Definitely need some clinical variants as much as possible. But again, depending on where you want to be. So, you know, if you're passionate about rehab and, and want to be a CEO of a rehabilitation hospital, then of course, rehabilitation experience is, you know, is the key. But if you're looking at somewhere like rural North Shore or North Shore Private that's got maternity and theatres and all the services, I personally think you need a bit of a varied clinical background because for me personally, it helped at the DCS level. Certainly from a GM to the CEO level, you need the business aspects coming into it. So that's where you need to do sort of an MBA or a, a master's in business of some sort. Mm. to help with that because you know it is largely finance you need to have an understanding of the accounting principles you need to have an understanding of strategic marketing and all of those things that are built into that particular role and you know I think you can start it at a DCS level so when I started my DCS I started in a master's of health service management and then when I became a CEO I just transferred the degree across Mm -hmm. into an MBA and with the majoring health service so and it helps you know every day there's finance discussions and meetings with my finance manager yeah. you know the, obviously the hospitals built around finance and decisions and marketing and strategy and all of those things so I think it depends on where you want to stop at I think if you you know if you want to be a nurse unit manager I certainly graduate certificate in management definitely helps and that starts the foundation of your budget and your rostering and your your strategic around staffing and workforce planning when you get to your dcs level i think you should be thinking about a master's in health management of some sort and then certainly when you get a 
above that, you'd be looking at more of a business orientated degree. Yeah. So it has more of those financial accounting strategic type subjects in it to help. Yeah. So that, that would be my recommendation. Well, that's certainly been my pathway and that's what's worked best for me. I think it's interesting you say that because I did my master's of health service management at the NUM level and it was amazing. And I, I believe, I have a belief that every NUM should have something management style because it's the non-clinical gaps that are problematic and causes the most headaches and sleepless nights. So that for me was great, but it was also kind of problematic in the sense that I felt like the financial stuff was a bit too high level for the NUM role. So it didn't quite have the impact. I couldn't quite get access to the stuff that I need. It wasn't overly important at that NUM level. But for culture and quality and innovation and just understanding leadership and leadership style and the difference between leadership and management, I think that, yeah, like it, it would be a great requirement for all numbers to have something like a grad cert, grad dip, master's yeah. in leadership, just to give them that foundation. I felt like it was invaluable for me. Yeah. And I think the common theme that I hear from the nuns is around having difficult conversations. It's the dealing with the families. It's completing the appraisals appropriately. It's that leadership aspects, that theme that commonly comes out. And there are aspects that are taught that you can teach all of those. And that's why I kind of mentioned it's just at a grad cert level, because once you start getting into that master's, obviously the subjects that they're throwing in are those higher level Mm. kind of which which are great for the next level because, you know, you're starting to get exposed to that level of role and needing those subjects. Yeah, totally. I love that. Amazing. Well, there's so much that we could explore, but I think we'll cap it there. Jason, thank you so much for your time. Is there any message you've already given an amazing, I think what you said earlier was the very best you will ever get out of your team is a worst behavior that you're prepared to tolerate, which I love that so much. Any other pieces of wisdom that you'd love to impart or share with the high performance testing community? Be consistent. I find inconsistency leads to you know, just problems. I, you know, I'm consistent with my walking around. I'm consistent with my appraisals. I'm consistent with performance management. I'm consistent with auditing. You know, I'm one of these people that when I hear of, oh, it's okay, accreditations in two more years, we'll do it. Then it's like, (laughs) you know, you should be accreditation ready every single day. And if an auditor walks in your door today, then great. Mm. I think for me, being a consistent manager across the board, even with feedback to the staff, you know, consistent with your meetings, you know, I've got a, a published meeting calendar that has everything in there that doesn't change, you know. Mm. So staff know they've got their department meetings on on a certain date and they know that they've got meetings that they've got on and it's just, yeah, consistency is the key. Yeah. And great application as well to clinical nursing, you know, back on the floor, like just being consistent in your practice. And I think a lot of the time we think we have to be experts at everything, but it's actually just about having the skills and being consistent and delivering day in, day out is what get you to where you want to be. For sure. Yeah, I love that so much. Jason, thank you so much for your time. I'll let you get away. You're welcome. All the amazing. Yes. yes. Likewise. Likewise. Thank right. you so much for your time. No have a good week. <laughs> Cheers. Bye. Bye. 
If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, you have to come and check out our High Performance Nursing Membership, my monthly coaching program where we take what we teach in this podcast and we take it to the next level to help you thrive as a high performance human and a nurse. Join us at liamcaswell.com forward slash HPNM. I would love to see you in there. I'll see you in coaching.